Let's open our Bibles tonight to Luke 22. The sacred history recorded by the beloved physician, the friend of our brother Paul, sent to Theophilus. We just sang a song that really only a Baptist could write and sing, honestly, because there was no sacramentalism in the words of it. It described the Lord's Supper as bringing things to our remembrance, and that while we partake of wine and bread, we think on nobler things, and that is the nature of the Lord's Supper, thinking on nobler things and remembering and showing his death till he comes. It's not a sign or seal of anything. It doesn't seal benefits to anyone like a Presbyterian Catholic believes. And and all it is is an emblematic, symbolic, metaphorical representation for us to get our minds focused on the fact that Jesus died for us. And remember that. Let's look at the first, Lord's Supper. I'm going to read... A number of verses here, beginning with the first verse of Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains, how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover, that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover, with my disciples. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Amen and amen. amen. This is the word of the Lord, and this is the first Lord's Supper. I would like to remind you that the Jews had a wonderful feast for 1,500 years called the Passover. God sent the angel of death, the king of terror, into the land of Egypt, and it visited every home, and it killed the firstborn in every home. The king of terrors was alive in that land, and the cry of Egypt went up into heaven. It was a terrible cry, and it was a cry that God felt that nation deserved and believed it deserved. And he poured out his judgment on that nation for what they had done to his people. But not a dog barked in the land of Goshen. Because when the king of terrors and the angel of death came through that land, he saw blood over every doorway. And the Bible tells us, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Every father had taken a Passover lamb, a special lamb with special requirements, and had cut its throat and drained its blood with his family. And they had taken that blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of that doorway. And all the family participated. They saw that blood of a tender little lamb being shed to protect their family from the angel of death that night. And when the Lord came through the land, he passed over them. And that feast was called the Passover. Because the Lord passed over the Israelites and did not pass over the Egyptians. The Lord made a choice that night. And he reached into cribs, and he reached into beds, where he found grown boys and he found infant boys, and he took them that night as a sacrifice for his people coming out of Egypt. He says of that great event, I gave Egypt as thy ransom. They paid a terrible price for the deliverance of the people of God that was called the Passover. It began on the 14th night of the first month of the year for them, when they would kill the Passover lamb and eat it with unleavened bread. And then for the next seven days they had to eat unleavened bread. And so the feast was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it began with the killing of the Passover. And so as we come to Luke 22, look at the first verse. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh. That means it was getting close, which is called the Passover. It's two names for the same feast. A seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because you could only eat unleavened bread. And it was called the Passover because you killed the Passover lamb in remembrance of the Lord passing over the houses of the Israelites. We come to verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And that Passover there means the Passover lamb must be killed. Now, we've already sung tonight how thankful we are for the Lamb that gave His blood for us. We're on this side of the kingdom of God. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ established the kingdom of God when He came into this world and He replaced the Passover feast with the Lord's Supper that we have tonight. But do you know what? It's still called the Passover. Because God, when we meet Him and sees the blood, will pass over us. It's still a Passover. It's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament feast 
foretold in dark, shadowy forms because the judgment that's coming is greater than the judgment that visited Egypt. The king of terrors will once again rule, but it'll be a terror that the world has never seen before, and it'll be the judgment of God at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he'll pass over us because our names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain. The Lamb slain. There was a Lamb slain for us. But it wasn't a father taking a goofy little lamb out of the flock. It was a father taking his only begotten son. And he took that lamb and shed his blood for you and me. And we have a Passover to keep tonight. And it is a wonderful feast. It's not a fast. It's a feast. It's not called, let us keep the fast, but let us keep the feast. And we do it with joy because our lamb lives forevermore. And he's not only a lamb, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has prevailed. And he's taken the book out of the right hand of him that sits on the throne of God. And he will never let anyone be confounded or ashamed that puts their trust in him. So put your trust in him tonight. We sang a song tonight, I need no other argument. That means I don't need a defense attorney to say anything else on my behalf. I need no other plea. I need no defense attorney to come and make a plea with the judge on my behalf. Because all that I need has already been done. Christ Jesus died for me. And that's all I need. And if you have the least bit of doubt in your heart tonight, did the Lord Jesus Christ die for me? I want to tell you something about the Bible. It is a book written by the judge of the trial. And the judge of the trial has written this precious book telling us how much the death of Jesus Christ meant to him and by what marks we can know that we are his and that we will never be ashamed that put our trust in him. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. The fact that Jesus Christ has died for me is all that I need. And that's where we put our trust tonight. And we want to look at this great feast that God has ordained for us to remember the death of His Son. I love the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them are so subtle. Peter and John said to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8 and 9, where do you want to have the Passover? I mean, we've got to go get a lamb, and we've got a whole lot of preparations to do for 13 men to have the Passover supper. The Lord Jesus gave them directions to go into town, and they'd run into someone there, and they could ask, the master needs a guest chamber. Which one would you like him to use? And they found a room furnished, all ready to go for that last supper. I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Small little details, Peter and John fretting and worrying, like we do so often. It's all taken care of already. You know, while they were asking their question, there was a, a goodman of a house making sure that everything was in a room already. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And He'll take care of you the same way if you put your trust in Him. And He'll take care of you when you're doubting like Peter and John. He's merciful to us. He's very merciful. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ said in verse 15, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
The evidence we have from the Gospel of John is that the Lord Jesus Christ ate four Passovers with his disciples. And that would have to be true, wouldn't it? If he preached the covenant to Israel for one half a week, which would be three and a half years, how many Passovers would you have to have to have three years in between them? Four Passovers. So he'd had the Passover with his men before, but he said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because for the first time, he was going to add a couple little events to that supper, and that's when he broke special bread and said, this is my body, and this is going to be broken for you, and this is my blood, and this is going to be shed for you. And that's what we ended with in verse 20. This is when... The Lord's Supper originated. Now, I want to tell you, if God will help me and bless me for the rest of my life, I want to be a Bible Christian. By a Bible Christian, I want to practice whatever the Bible tells me and to hell with anything else. I don't care how close they think they are. I don't care how close they claim. I don't care what antiquity they have. They can go to hell. If, If their religion and their practice is not found... In the words of my King James Bible, I have no use for them, and I don't want to know anything that they do except to refute it by the power of God's Word. I'm a Bible Christian, and this matter of the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake of is a matter of revelation, not a matter of rationalization. It's not something that we think about and what would be meaningful in our little minds. It's something we humble ourselves before the Word of God and do it exactly as He says, And we do not look for anything beyond what the Word of God tells us to look for in this supper. We must be Bible Christians in this church. And I want all the young men and all the young women to always be Bible Christians. If it's not found in the Word of God, to hell with it. I don't care about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It doesn't mean any more to me than the Canons of Dort. It doesn't mean any more to me than the Council of Trent. It does not. Why would I care about what a daughter harlot has to say versus her mother? Why would I care? We're not reformed. We're Bible Christians. We didn't have to reform the Bible. We didn't have to reform our religion. Reformed Baptist is an oxymoron, and the two words do not belong together. There is no such thing. If you're a Baptist, you didn't need to be reformed because you were never part of her. There's a sermon coming on that. Just pray for me. I didn't think it was time to put that baby out on the Internet while our brother Lao Sing Fu is having his little struggles in Malaysia. And we love our brother, but we're not going to add to his woes. But I, I would like to preach a sermon on Reformed Baptists being the greatest oxymoron in our part of the religious world because the two terms don't go together. They're contradictory to each other. This is the Lord's Supper. We want, to, we want the Lord's Supper established in our hearts and minds straight from the Bible. The devil has always tried to ape the things of the Lord. Has it bothered you when you read the Bible that false religion had altars and priests and animal and blood and drink sacrifices? Where do you think that idea came from? Satan himself trying to ape the things of God. And he's tried to ape the Lord's Supper. We are not sacramentalists. Any, any piece of paper that you read that talks about the sacraments, I don't care if it's two or seven, we don't want anything to do with it. 
We're not sacramentalists. We don't believe that there's sacramental power in anything that we do. All the power is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that. Before he commissioned his disciples, he said, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore. It's all mine. All we do, it's all his. The Lord Jesus Christ said, It's not mine. I was speaking on his behalf. The power is his. And we don't put the power in the ordinances that he gave us to keep. So that men become the wielders of that power instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's now turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. The corruptions of the Lord's Supper in practice and intention are legion. And I name it appropriately. It's our wisdom to know the truth. You know, we're accused of not being Christians because we don't keep the pagan Roman Catholic holidays. Well, we're keeping a feast tonight, and they don't even care about what we're doing. But this is a feast that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained. It may not have all the pomp and show that they want of putting a tree in the corner of your living room, but I'll tell you, this is a feast. The Bible calls it a feast, and if the Bible calls it a feast, it's a feast to me. Amen. And it is a feast. When you think of our, so- our sovereign died for us, as we sang this morning in another song, that is a feast. That is a tremendous feast. This simple ordinance has been observed by despicable people in despicable places as simply as we're going to do it tonight for 2,000 years. I love antiquity. The antiquity of the apostles. And anyone in between that didn't do it the apostolic way, I don't care about their antiquity. God, through meditating upon His precepts, has made us wiser than the ancients. We don't need those ancients. All we need is the ancient apostles that showed us how to do it. And now look at these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 23. The apostle Paul, was he in that large upper room furnished? No. He wasn't there to see the Passover that the Lord Jesus Christ said, with desire, I have desired to keep this Passover with you. He wasn't there. So look what we have in the Word of God. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. The Lord Jesus Christ taught Paul personally. And the Apostle Paul took taking ship and by foot made his way across what we would call Turkey and into Greece and through Macedonia and down into Achaia to the pagan lascivious city of Venus and the wicked Corinthians and came and started this church and he delivered something to them. Do you know what he delivered? Apostolic tradition. And it's apostolic tradition that I will hold fast. I don't care about the tradition of Rome. I don't care about the tradition of the Presbyterians. John Kelvin doesn't mean anything to me. Nothing. He's done... I don't even want to get off on that subject. 
What means something to me is the Apostle Paul and the tradition that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him that he delivered in person to the Corinthians and then wrote it down in an epistle so that we can have it. This is how we ought to keep the Lord's Supper. What's been given to us in the Word of God, the Apostle Paul received instructions for it from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Did Paul's rendering of the Last Supper match up with what we read in Luke 22? Amazing, isn't it? Paul didn't just make that up. The Lord Jesus Christ taught him. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul exhorting the Corinthian church to cast out the fornicator that was in their midst and to observe the Lord's Supper without such sin, sitting at the table with them. He said, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I want you to notice from these two verses that the Lord's Supper replaced the Passover and replaced it so thoroughly that when we look at this supper, we think of Jesus Christ being our Passover. Because Paul said that. Paul said that Jesus Christ is our Passover that was sacrificed for us. It is just as true as in Israel and Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Because we have been redeemed by His blood out of every nation, tongue, kindred, and people, to be in the great multitude of heaven, the elect of God by His blood. It's His blood that covers us. Knowing that ye were redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The Son of God gave His blood. The Son of God gave His life. The Son of God was sacrificed for us. Just like fathers took a little lamb out of the flock and sacrificed it, for the safety of their oldest in every home in Israel. And they commemorated that every year with thousands and then millions and then tens of millions of lambs being killed to commemorate the Passover when God passed over. And God is going to pass over us by His grace. And we are going to lay hold of that. And tonight we're going to remember it. And we're going to show it until He comes. And we're going to keep doing this until the Lord comes. And you younger members, when we're gone, you keep doing this until the Lord comes. Showing His death until He does come. I want our children established in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And I want all of you reminded. Children, do we use grape juice or wine in the Lord's Supper? Austin, we use wine. Most churches use grape juice because they think wine is such a terrible beverage. Now, we want to be able to prove that from the Word of God. Let's think about it in a couple of different ways. What kind of a beverage did Israel drink? Had Welch's invented their concoction called grape juice at that point in time? No, they hadn't. That's a very recent discovery. The the beverage of choice at the Passover was wine, as the beverage of choice at any meal for an Israelite was wine. There's another reason that we'd like to use wine, because there's no leaven left in wine. 
What causes fermentation is the yeast, the, the microscopic fungus that grows on the skin of a grape. When the grape is smashed, that fungus mixes with the sugar water that's inside the grape, and the combination of that fungus and sugar water begins to create alcohol. And when alcohol reaches about 14%, it kills that microscopic fungus, and there's no more fermentation, and you've got wine. Amen. It's killed the fungus. There's none left. It's unleavened. Because the leaven has been consumed in the fermentation process. Amen. But here's the, reason, here's the way we prove it with the Word of God most directly. We come to 1 Corinthians 11 and look at the condition of the Corinthians who were having too much of the grape juice at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul rebuking this church. Oh, what a church. You know, we, I preached through this a few months ago, how they corrupted the Lord's Supper so quickly and so profanely. The way they were eating before others, some were getting nothing. They had turned it into a carnal feast. But look at what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. Another is drunken. It doesn't say another has drunken. It doesn't say another, another has drunk. This is not the past tense of, of drinking. This is a participial adjective meaning being under the intoxicating power of a beverage. These people were in a drunken stupor. They were intoxicated at Corinth, and there's no correction of the beverage that they were drinking at Corinth. We use wine. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that we use wine, and we'll continue to use wine. Thank you for showing us that. Why do we use wine? Because when the Bible tells us, and you remember, remember, this is the only descriptive chapter of a church celebrating the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. When it describes it, it tells us that the people that drank too much of the beverage they used the Lord's Supper, they got drunk. And you don't get drunk on grape juice. You just get fat. Because it's got so much sugar in it that hasn't been used up in the fermentation process. For the bread, let's think about the bread. What kind of bread was on the table when the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the first Lord's Supper? Unleavened bread, because it was the Passover was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we know he used unleavened bread, because any house that had leavened bread in it, that man was to be cut off. Exodus chapter 12. There's one chapter God gave us in the Bible about all the details of the Passover, and it's Exodus chapter 12, and there was to be no leaven in those houses and no leavened bread for the full seven days of that feast. But when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we can see the Apostle Paul appealing to the fact of unleavened bread metaphorically for how we ought to keep the feast spiritually. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, those three verses, leavens being used for sin, 
and unleavens being used for a church that doesn't have known public sin. That we got to admit that from these three verses. But the apostle has called the Lord's Supper, the Passover, right in the middle of his metaphorical use of unleavened bread. And we know what bread was used because there was only one kind of bread at the Passover. And it was unleavened bread. And in the Bible, leaven is a symbol of sin because a little bit of it in a bunch of dough affects all the dough. And a little bit of sin in a church affects the state of that church before God. We use unleavened bread. Because unleavened bread does not have yeast or leaven in it. That's what leaven is. It's yeast. I'm watching it again these days, two days a week, Wednesday and Friday mornings, and seeing yeast affect a large amount of water and wheat put together. Amazing. The Lord gave it to us. Do some of you think that that Adam was walking through the fields outside the Garden of Eden, and he decided to take a bunch of flour? He decided to take a bunch of flour and get it all wet and sticky. And as he was walking along, he ran into some yeast. And all of a sudden, he watched it start to rise and said, I'll call this bread. Do you think that that's how Adam discovered things? No. That is not how Adam discovered things. And there's a way to tell. It's to go to Isaiah 28 and read the last five verses where God said that he instilled in man all the wisdom of how to deal with each grain. They did not have to figure those things out. But you know, you look at some continents, and they haven't figured it out yet. Now, the Lord is merciful. God is merciful. I'm serious. They're still throwing boomerangs at rabbits. You know, they have not figured out things like bread in the way that Adam knew it from the very beginning. Unleavened bread means that there's no yeast in it. And there was a reason because God wasn't going to give Israel time for bread to rise the night that he went through the land. He said, I want your shoes on. I want your staff in your hand when you're eating that meal because I'm going to call you out of Egypt tonight. And they left that night. And there wasn't time for all their bread to rise. And so it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now there's another thing that we do differently about our bread. And you say, well, do crackers have yeast? Yes, most crackers have yeast in them. We do something else different. We have one lump of bread up here. We have one loaf of bread up here. And if we get to be a bigger church, it's going to be a bigger loaf. But it's going to be one loaf. One bread. We don't go to some machine and put in a quarter and say, give me 70 chiclets for communion tonight. 70 little wafers that it spits out. You know, most churches use something bought in a box. It'll last forever because there's no food in there. But um, they use little wafers. But see, that isn't what the Bible tells us. Because the Bible says one lump. Because our Lord Jesus Christ was one body, and that body was torn. And that one loaf of bread represents one congregation, and I'm tearing it for each one of you. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that, that that picture is that we all partake in one body. And so you start with one piece of bread. And I want all of our children to understand why we do things. It's very simple. We are Bible Christians. If it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. If it's in the Bible, we do do it. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, about one loaf. Verse 16. 
the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Oh, you mean they didn't buy wafers? No. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. In those two verses, is implied and understood that you're starting out with one loaf of bread and you're tearing it and breaking it to show the Lord's body being broken because Jesus asked for that to be done. It says, when he had given thanks, he break bread and then distributed it. And it also shows that we're one body together. There are reasons why we have the things that we have at the Lord's Supper. The Bible tells us and we're going to stick to them. And other men have stuck to them before us for 2,000 years. Who gets to participate at the Lord's table? Let's come back to 1 Corinthians 5 and read a couple of those verses again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read verses 6 through 8 again. Your glorying is not good. Now what was their glorying? Their glorying was in the fact that they were puffed up about having a fornicator in their midst and were not mourning over having such a sinner. It's from verse 2. They were glorying in the fact of what a generous, merciful, compromising, moderate church they were in allowing such a man to exist. How forgiving they were. They were glorying in sin in their midst instead of mourning over it. So we come to verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And those words are not talking about real bread directly. Those words are talking about sin in a church directly. Let's not keep the feast of the Lord's Supper with sin in the body of the church. Let's get it out. And so the apostle goes on and explains in the last part of verse 13, Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Only members of a church in good standing that are not guilty of public sin can partake of the Lord's Supper. Only church members because it's the body that was at Corinth that had common union together in chapters 5, 10, and 11. It's when the whole church comes together into one place that you observe communion. It's the communion of the body of Christ. It's our common union. And when we take in a member, we ask them a number of questions, and we ask, are you in union with us in our belief that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God? We go through that step to make sure that we're doing as much as we can scripturally to have true church members. Because who has a right to the Lord's table in any given church are those members in good standing with that church. When a member sins publicly, we put him out. He no longer has a right to this table because we want to keep the body that's partaking of that table pure without the leaven of sin Malice and wickedness and the old leaven of our old lives. We only want those here that have the new lives of sincerity and truth. 
church discipline is seen most clearly right here. Right. And we've, we've shown it before. By having excluded members still sitting in our midst, but unable to participate until they're restored to this table. Right here is where church membership is seen. Now, there's three positions that people take on communion. There's open communion. Anybody can come in and take it anywhere you want it. And most churches are doing that today because they don't know who their members are. And they're too big and they don't care. So most people practice open communion today. Then there's close communion, and then there's closed communion. Close communion is, as long as you're part of our denomination, we'll let you sit at our table with us. As long as you're part of our buddies in buddy churches nearby, we'll let you sit with us. That's called close communion. Then there's closed communion, where only those of a local congregation participate. That's what we practice. That's what we'll keep practicing. See, if John Doe comes from Asheville, North Carolina, and says, I'm a Baptist, so? So is Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson's a Baptist minister. Are we going to let him sit here? Well, John Doe from Asheville, North Carolina says, I'm better than Jesse Jackson. Well, in whose opinion? You know, we don't know anything about you. We don't know if you're living with your wife. We don't know if you're, what you're doing at all in your life. We don't have any jurisdiction over you. We can't let you sit at our table because we are bound for the character and the quality of every member that's coming to this table. We're bound. And it's a common union. We don't know that you believe the things we believe because we have a common union with these people. We know what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. We know what we believe about His blood. We know what we believe about His body. We practice close communion. Close has, because it's outside of Scripture, anybody could come in here. Well, I'm almost a Baptist. And you know there'd be some in here that would say, well, that's close enough. Let's take an almost Baptist. And pretty soon you have open communion, which is what most churches have gone to. We practice closed communion. Because look, in 1 Corinthians 5, one of our very own members, we can close communion to one of our very own members by excluding him from our fellowship and putting him on the outside. If we can close it to our own members, and if we must close it to our own members, we certainly close it to those that we don't know anything about, strangers that would come in here, or those that we can't prove they're in common union with us, or those that are not committed with us, and those that are not part of the one bread that make us up. Where there's one bread that represents all of us. See, we've been united into one body. There is a bigger body. There is a body of all of God's elect. It's called the family of God and it's called other names in Scripture. But there's also a local assembly that is called the local body of Christ. And we've been added to that by the choice of God. And we've been given each other. And a man walking in is not a little toe. He's not an elbow. He's not a nose. He's not anything of this body. He has his own body he's supposed to be part of. We practice closed communion. When someone comes, and there's a, there's a lengthy document on our website where we try to explain that. When someone comes in here and they're a visitor, we don't mean them any offense. We love them. We're glad they're visiting. We hope they find a church, and if they love the truth, we hope they find this church to commune with us. And we want to make that plain to everyone. But see, this table shows the judgment of a local church. 
And what kind of a judgment is it of a local church if we're excluding our own members and letting others wander in the door that we don't know anything about? Now the Catholics made another alteration on the participants in the Lord's Supper. The Catholics wouldn't let the laity, that's you, you're the dumb people, you're called the laity, the clergy are the ministry, the smart ones, they got the wine, you got the bread. Now that's a fair trade, isn't it? You eat the bread, and I'll drink for you. You eat the bread, and I'll drink for you. And most priests were drunk, and if you think that I'm making it up about the Roman Catholic Church, why don't you try 50 years in the Church of Rome by Charles Chinaquay? They did not give the wine to the laity. They did not give the wine to the people. All you got was their little wafer with the sunburst on it. They said in the Council of Trent, it doesn't matter. When you take the bread, when you take our little host, as they call it, you are getting the body and the blood and the soul and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Both components of Jesus Christ, body and blood, are in the one thing, the bread. You receive both forms of Jesus Christ under one substance. They did not give the wine to the laity until recent years. Now I want to tell you about my Lord Jesus Christ and why I'm a Bible Christian. Come back to Luke 22 as we're passing over to Matthew 26. Come back to Luke 22. Let's go to Matthew 26 first. Matthew 26, please. It might be easier for your, your minds to be logical if we go Matthew first. Matthew 26 and 27. These are simple points. I want you to know why we do things that we do. Everyone partakes of the wine. Everyone partakes of the bread. And right there we stand opposed to one billion Roman Catholics and what they have practiced for 1,500 years. Matthew 26 and verse 67 Matthew 26 and verse 27. Excuse me, 26, 27. This is Matthew's account of, the, of that Passover that we read about in Luke 22. Matthew 26, 27. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. Drink ye all of it. Drink ye all of it. Or drink ye all of it. Did this mean that they should drink all that was in the cup? Or does this mean that everyone at the table should drink of what was in the cup? Drink ye all. Ye is plural. It's y'all. Drink y'all of it. Y'all were to be involved in the drinking of that wine. The Lord Jesus Christ cut off early, like he did in so many places, the false doctrine of the false church that was going to arise on this earth and say that the laity did not get the wine. Come back to Luke 22 and see the words that Luke used for the same expression. I remember as a boy, when I read that, drink ye all of it, it must have meant get it all, you know. So I'd, I'd run my tongue down in a little cup and make sure I got the last drop. It's probably... and I'm. 
I shouldn't even talk that way, but listen. It was just, you know, I, I didn't know any better. I was good. You've heard some of my poor, blighted understandings of the Word of God. You know, when the Bible says if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you could move mountains, and I'd stand there and try to move Peach Mountain outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, just a foolish child. That's not what the verse means. The verse means everybody drinks of the wine. Drink ye all of it. And here's what Luke had to say about it. Luke chapter 22, here's how he put it in verse 17. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Thank you, Lord. I need a cross-reference sometimes to figure out what it means. Drink ye all of it. But I want you to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want you to love the Word of God. 500 years before they started the foolish practice, the Bible had already said everyone was to partake of the wine. Now, why does it say that about the bread? Because there wasn't going to be a problem with the bread. There was going to be a problem with the wine. The Bible knew it ahead of time and headed them off at the pass. Do you love the Bible? But they have a conscience seared with a hot iron, and it doesn't mean a thing to them to go against Holy Scripture. We have Holy Scripture on our side. Jesus condemned that heresy 500 years before they dreamed it up. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians. No, we can stay right here in Luke 22. What do you think about the first four words that are quoted by Jesus, that are set, spoken by Jesus in verse 19? This is my body. This is my body. Many of these things I've taught you before. I know that. But I will stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance so that all of you will stand fast in the one holy apostolic faith. There is one faith. There is one Lord. There's one baptism. And though the passage doesn't say it, there's one Lord's Supper. This is my body. We have ancestors in the faith that have laid down their lives on these four words. Some of you may know a little bit about Lady Jane. She was the Queen of England for six days at the age of 17. She laid down her life because she took these words as a Baptist takes them. This is my body. It is a metaphor, meaning that the bread represented his body. She said to Bloody Mary, he also said, I am the vine and I am the door. Is he a door? Seventeen years old and she lost her head to Bloody Mary because she understood these words and we have thousands more just like her. And yea, there's probably millions that have gone to their graves because they defied the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation that Jesus somehow converted the bread into his own body. They look at the words, this is my body. There's no figure of speech. There's no understanding. It's just to be taken literally. This is my body. You know, even though he was holding something that wasn't his body, he was holding a piece of bread. But he changed it with those words, this is my body. And when a priest said it in Latin, and they all spoke in Latin until just about 30 years ago, it was hocus corpus meum. This is my body in Latin. And that's where we get the words hocus pocus. Because good old Baptists thought it was nothing but 
foolish hocus-pocus to think that a Roman Catholic priest, by saying those words in Latin, could change a host into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, don't just race over those words with me. The cracker, in their opinion, turns into the body, blood, remember, so that you don't have to have the wine, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Those aren't my words, those are their words. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cracker was changed. They call it transubstantiation. The substance of the cracker was transformed in its nature entirely. The cracker ceased to exist, and now it was God. The divinity of Jesus Christ. God. They create God on their altars. They talk about bringing God down on their altars. They hold them up. And the people are to say, Lord, we are not worthy to have you under our roof. They lock up the leftovers in the little house and put a key to it and get down and bow to the leftovers because they believe it's God, because they don't understand those words, this is my body. And we have ancestors that have given our lives on this point of doctrine. This point of doctrine is not a light matter. I want every one of you to understand that. Jesus said, I am the light. Jesus said, I am the door. Does he have hinges? Does he have a knob? I am the vine. He was speaking metaphorically, and we were to understand that. He was saying, I am like a vine. Ye are like my branches. You need sustenance and vitality flowing (coughs) through me to you for you to be able to bear much fruit. Just as we read this morning in Philippians 4. You know, when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, do you know what he was really saying metaphorically there? I am a branch, and Jesus Christ is the vine. The Catholics don't see any figure of speech. And see, when we go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, we come over to 1 Corinthians, there we have the words, this is my body. This is my body. The Catholics just lay hold of that and say, see, this is my body. And see, over there in John chapter 6, it says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, I taught a whole sermon on that passage, and I'm going to ask you to remember it. That to eat and drink of the Lord Jesus Christ is to come to him and believe on him, which those people would not do. They wanted bread. Remember, he had fed the multitude with bread, and they wanted more bread. They wanted more free lunches, because it's easier to have Jesus Christ provide free lunches than to go work for your food. And so he was playing off the word of eating bread, because they wanted to eat bread, but he was saying, I am the real bread of life. And coming to me and believing on me is partaking of me and eating me and drinking my blood by believing on me and believing on the body that would be broken and the blood that would be shed. Enough on that. When we come to this Lord's Supper, and we have bread and we have wine, and we say, this is my body, we understand that in the same way he said, I am the vine. It's a picture for us. Breaking the bread, tearing it like his body was torn, is a picture for us. And it's like his body. This represents my body. If I hold up a picture and say, this is my wife, I'm a lonely man if the little piece of paper in my right hand is my wife. Are you with me? I'm holding something that represents my wife. All that is is a reflection cast on paper that shows what my wife looks like. And when the Lord said, this is my body, he's saying, this bread is to picture my body 
And it's to help you remember it when you observe the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther, that great hero of the faith, as so many worshipped him, you know, he means no more to me than John Kelvin does. The Apostle Paul means a lot to me. Because he's the Apostle of the Gentiles. Martin Luther was a deluded Catholic who hardly made any advances out of the Catholic Church. And John Kelvin didn't make very many himself. Martin Luther came along and said, well, we've still got a cracker. It still tastes like a cracker. Smells like a cracker. I drop it into water and it dissolves like a cracker. I I see the words, this is my body. And body is synecdoche, meaning that it is his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but the cracker is still there as well. Now, that's a little slicker. Okay, instead of the cracker changing, when you know the cracker hasn't changed because you can still crumble it, roll it in your hands, dissolve it on your tongue, Martin Luther said, I still see the cracker, so they both exist. The cracker has turned into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but it's still the cracker as well. I am serious. That doctrine is consubstantiation. Not a transformation of substance, but two substances together. And because he looks at the word body and creates the figure of speech off that, it's a synecdoche. And the whole reason he made up a synecdoche out of those four words is because he had to be loyal to Rome because if he would have denied the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the host of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they'd have cut his head off. Because he's a daughter of the Roman Catholic Church. The Presbyterians come along and say, we don't want to admit either of those heresies. He's just there spiritually. And if you don't believe me, go home and read chapter 29 carefully of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, it's in the back of your hymnal. And you can say that you, and you can read that you participate really, truly. And the benefits of his death are sealed to you, to a Presbyterian in the Lord's Supper, because it is still a sacrament. They don't dare give up the word sacrament because then it would sever their ties with Rome if they gave up the word sacrament. But see, we never had ties with Rome, so we don't use the sacrament. Go search your concordance. It's not in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. There's no sealing of the benefits of Jesus Christ to you by partaking of this supper. On four words. Is every word of God pure and important? Amen. And we're to live by every word of God. Amen. This is my body. As he took a piece of bread and tore it, this is my body. This represents my body. This is a symbolic picture to you men of what's going to happen to my body and is going to be broken for the remission of sins. Let's come over to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read verses 24 through 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. 
After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Take, eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't say do this in reenactment of the sacrifice of me. Do this as doing something to me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's all a mental matter of faith by which we lay hold of the fact that Jesus Christ died for us and we remind ourselves of that event by the bread and the wine. We show the Lord's death by a symbolic picture, just like we show the Lord's death and resurrection in baptism. We show it right here in the Lord's Supper. We are Baptists and we are Bible Christians. We take a metaphorical understanding of this is my body. Is is proof is show is the metaphor to us. This is my body. It's a comparison between two things. The bread has some similarities to my body, and when you see the bread torn, you are to be thinking about my one body being torn for you. And that's how we remember, and that's how we show the Lord's death till he comes. There's no grace conveyed. There's no salvation sealed. The bread and wine isn't changed, and there's no eternal life offered by what we're doing. Just like when you go under the waters of baptism, it doesn't change your soul. It's, by, it's the means by which you give God the answer of a good conscience. Now look at this chapter further. It says in verse 27, Wherefore? So we have a conclusion coming from verses 24 through 26, where Paul said, This do in remembrance of me, twice, and this is how you show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We will be as if we had slain the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves by taking such a light approach to something that stands for his blood and his body. And it goes on to say, verse 28, explaining what it means to do it unworthily. And there's two things we want to remember. Here's how we partake of it unworthily. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself. If you come without examining yourself, which means to look for sins and ask for God to show you your sins and to confess them, then you're partaking of these things unworthily. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Then the second way that we can do it unworthily. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Just to come in here and have your mind flipping off about everything else, and not discerning that this is the time to remember what the Lord did for us by allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, is to partake unworthily. So there's two things we want to do. Examine ourselves, confessing our sins, and then make sure we discern. That means we're perceiving and thinking, believing, hoping, remembering the Lord's body and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. The Corinthians weren't doing those things. Look what it says about them in verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The Lord is serious about this supper. For this cause, many, many are weak 
and sickly, and many sleep. They were already dead. Sleep was not sleeping in church. Sleep was the death of sleep of believers at Corinth for taking the supper unworthily, either by not confessing their sins or not discerning the Lord's body in it. And when you read about them eating in front of each other and not everyone getting to participate, that was obviously a very profane approach to the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. Amen. This is a feast. It's not a fast. This is not a funeral because he's been alive for 2,000 years. But we want to remember the great things he did for us in dying on the cross. He earned our eternal redemption by shedding his blood and having his body broken for us. Emotion is not the key. Emotion isn't the key. Faith is the key. Confession of your sins is the key. Repentance and discernment of the Lord's body is the key. The Lord doesn't always give you the same emotion for coming to him in faith. He's never promised it. You know, the Bible's very plain. If it wanted to tell us, ring forth the tears when you come to the Lord's table, it would tell us to ring forth the tears. It does not tell us to do that. It tells us, remember my death till I come. This do in remembrance of me. Show forth my death till I come. Discern the Lord's body. It is a matter of faith. And at times, depending on how close you're walking with the Lord, depending on how tired you are, depending on whether the Lord has visited you with a special portion of His presence, you will find more or less emotion at different times at the Lord's Supper. You know what? He doesn't give us a verse about that. He gives us, remember me. Don't forget what I did for you. And do you know what the real, the real proof is that you haven't forgotten what he's done for you? That you're willing to do something for him. Right. That you'll come away from this table wanting to do the things he taught us this morning from Philippians 4. He just wants us to remember, I did something dramatic and great and costly and painful with everlasting consequences of blessing and goodness for you when I died on the cross. Don't forget it. Remember it until I come. I'm not hanging on a cross. I'm sitting at the right hand of power forevermore. But don't forget what I did. And then live like it. Everything in the Bible is always understood to mean and then live like it. And not only do we remember him, but we also remember our common union together about him when we come to this one bread and the wine that's been poured for us. May the Lord bless at the review of the Lord's Supper to each of you tonight.